The Tea Stop In podcast is inspired by a long tradition of relaxed conversations about the film industry and the craft of cinematography. As a working cinematographer, producer, and colorist, Ben Allen, ACSCSI, gets to have conversations with some of the most exciting people in the industry today. And we're inviting you to listen in. The Tea Stop In. I'm Ben Allen and welcome to this episode of The Tea Stop In, brought to you with the support of ARI Australia and MZ Online Training. Steve Winden, ACS, ASC, is hugely respected both at home in Australia and in America, and he's equally comfortable on a fast-shooting Australian TV series or a major Hollywood franchise. Steve, welcome to The Tea Stop In. Thank you, Ben. Now, most people, when we get to this beginning stage of the conversation, there's, there's a big story about how they discovered the film industry and cinematography. I suspect that happened a little earlier than most people for you. It did start early for me. In a funny kind of way, I, I guess, having watched my father work as a cinematographer, because that was his career, during school holidays when I was young and around the age of eight, I used to visit him on set and I used to be wow. marvelled by the the magic of telling a story with a motion picture camera. Around the time I was eight, I was sort of already fascinated by the fact that you could use a camera to tell a story. And, mm. you know, that had, I guess it was an early thing for me to realise that although I hadn't made a decision that's what I wanted to do, that would come later, but it was in my DNA and it certainly helped me decide, yes, that's a, an amazing passion, an amazing career. So tell me about your father. He wasn't just a cameraman. He was one of the towering giants of the ACS. Yeah, he was. He was uh, president of the ACS and for uh, a few years. It was sort of around the time when cinematographers, there, there weren't that many. The world of cinematography kind of expanded a little later, especially in Australia. But my father started as a, he was a newsreel cameraman. and As most of them did As most generation. of them did, yeah, at the yeah. time. And there were really only two newsreel companies. There was Cine Sound and, and Movie Tone. He worked for Movie Tone News. Yep. And he was the chief cameraman there for many years. In the early days, even when television began in Australia, the newsreels kept going until around 1970, I think it was. Could have even been a year or two later. But during that sort of early 60s, he was a a newsreel cameraman. and At the the height of that medium. At the height of the air, no, exactly, yeah. He began with that. And then when television began, there was sort of this movement in the middle of the 60s where advertising went nuts. And, you know, they needed more advertising on, on television. You know, it just became this big thing, especially when colour came along. Of course, yeah. So he decided then to leave the newsreel world and started his own production company, which was called Ron Winden Productions. <laughs> and he became a television advertising director and cameraman. That's what he did. He specialised in being a director cameraman. Mm. Yeah. I guess there, there was a, a little bit of a tradition of cinematographers running production companies here in Australia that was a little bit less common, I think, elsewhere in the world. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of an yeah, interesting think, little thing that happened Yeah, here. that's right. There was a, certainly a wave of, of director cameramen. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if it is a, a product of us not having kind of the, the Hollywood studio system here, but having those two big newsreel companies and so the, these guys coming out of that as that advertising world started to grow, that maybe that, that was where that came from, that anomaly. Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. And it was... You know, because the industry was very small here, then yeah. it wasn't like a director could 
potentially go and choose a, a cameraman because they were literally only <laughs> a handful of people. Yeah, and yeah. and I, I remember those times as a kid, as a young child, already aware that there weren't too many people doing what, what my father was doing, you know, so. All of the cinematographers in Sydney kind of gathering around. Yeah, and that yeah. was that was the starting point. It was, it was newsreel for yeah. the cinema or it was when TV began, it was news gathering. That was kind of where everybody started. And I guess uh, some of those guys went, you know, straight into the commercials world and some of them went into TV news. And then, of course, in the 70s, there was that revival of the Australian film industry that happened. And, of course, there was even more demand for those skills. Yes, yeah. It, and it is, it's quite amazing how the 70s, everything changed, you know, because uh, all of a sudden the feature industry Mm. evolved in a way that all of a sudden there were cinematographers who were photographing amazing films and coming from different backgrounds, especially news or mm. documentaries, and all of a sudden beginning their careers and flowering their careers from that point in the beginning of Australian cinema in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. So you grew up around it. When did you first start to actually work on set? I decided when I left school, I left school in 1976. I finished to year six, it was, it was called then. And then I decided to go to North Sydney Technical College. Wow. The TAFE College. Which is still quite well regarded. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a, still a great, I think, a great course. I go and visit there a couple of times a year and Fantastic. Get, go back to the beginning because <laughs> it, it means a lot to me. Yeah, yeah. And I did that for, it was meant to be a four-year course part-time, but I did the first year was full-time. Mm. So I did my course there and I studied film production techniques certificate course, but I specialised in cinematography. So you could wow. you could specialise in a strand, editing, sound or cinematography. So I chose cinematography. You know, I learnt things from cinematographers like Lloyd Shields and Bob Harding, you know, yeah. and who are just incredible teachers and very, really good at sort of preparing us for what we could experience in this amazing industry. It's amazing to see Bob still turning up to ACS events. I love that. Now, yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah I see him. When I see him there, I, it, it just, it's just great. You know, so it was, it was guys like Bob and Lloyd and my father yeah. who – you know, I sort of look to and watch them work. So when I did that, the end of that course, after a year, Lloyd Shields was actually the head of the Sydney camera department at ABC TV in Sydney. And he called me. I remember my mum answering the phone. We lived at Gladesville and he knew my mother because he knew, because of Ron, you know, my father. Yeah. And he talked to me and he said, Steve, he said, we just finished your first year. It's November 1977. And he said, starting on Janu first week of January, I'd like to offer you a job at the, in the Sydney camera department at the ABC as a camera assistant. And I said, <laughs> wow, that's amazing. I was like, wow, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and work for the ABC. Yeah. And I was inspired by watching... ABC television at the time, I was very much into documentaries and, and mm. I used to watch a show called A Big Country. Oh, yes. Which I loved. It was just simple stories about mm. what it's like, usually in a rural setting, about the challenges of having a cattle station or a sheep station or mm. someone at the beginning of hang gliding. You know, we did so many stories and they were really cool half-hour programs. So without me knowing, as soon as I, day one I started at the ABC, my first job was being a camera assistant on, a, on this show called The Big Country. Wow. And I worked wow. with a cameraman called Ted Raymond. Ah, Ted. Who, of course, yes. is a long-time ACS uh, member and state president for a long time. Yeah. And national president. And national president, yeah. exactly. Yeah, wonderful man. That was really my first 
few months of working there, I was working on a show that I, I loved. I was working with Ted Raymond, you know, yeah. it was fantastic. And that Cine Camera Department of the ABC had had an extraordinary number of people like before that time and since that yeah. time go through there and go on to, to amazing careers yes. outside of there. Yeah, that's right. Dean Semler. Yeah. I think Don McAlpine. Yep. There were many who... John who, Seal. John Seal, of course, yeah. yeah. They all started it at, uh, at the ABC TV network, you know. Yeah. And... Uh, it's amazing. Look at where their careers went. Steve was lucky enough to come through the legendary training program that has produced many of Australia's finest cinematographers. Now it's possible to get high-level professional training wherever and whenever you want using MZ's new mobile app. So check it out at mz.com and use the promo code TSTOP for a 20% discount. One of the recurring themes that just keeps coming up on this podcast is the the value and and the beauty of doing documentaries, particularly yes. early in your career. Yes, I agree. There's something about being able to tell a story mm. visually, and I guess in a, in a very unselfish way, is so important. And I guess I learnt this from from different cameramen, you know, working with amazing documentary cameramen like Ted Raymond. Yeah. I remember working uh, with a cameraman called Les Wosley at the ABC on a Big mm. Country episode, and I was a camera assistant. And we were on a cattle station in, in the centre of Queensland somewhere. Les just photographing this young boy. He was the son of the of the station owner. Yeah. And I think he was like 15 or 16 years old. And he was just leaning on this on this old post and rail fence around a cattle yard. And the sun was just blazing from above and it was just <laughs> – there was there was nothing – you know, it wasn't a beautiful time of day or anything, but it was just – the way Les shot it was just, you know, wow. I'll never forget. And I wow. remember – because when you're an assistant, you're loading magazines and you're there helping, you know, carry the tripod around and the lens box and, and, and some spare film. Yeah. But then – a week or two later, you'd go back to the ABC and you'd sit in a little theatrette with just a little eight-seat room and you'd watch the 16-millimetre film projected on the screen. Wow. And that was the way all the work was watched. Even though it was going to end up on television, you always watched it on, on, on a screen in a, in a small theatre. Fantastic. And I remember seeing one shot that Les did that just – and it was that scene where it's filming this boy leaning on a fence – and there's a voiceover of him talking about, you know, what he may do in the future, this young yeah. man. And Les just zoomed into this amazing tight shot of this young boy's eyes and a profile shot. Wow. And he just held on them forever and ever and ever. And, the, and it was literally just the closest shot of an eye I've, I've ever seen. Wow. And he was on this a zoom lens called a, a 10 to 150 millimetre ingenue zoom. Really? And... And then Les would just hold that shot and then, and then he'd just tilt down through sort of negative space and just tilt down, tilt down and land on this, on his hands who were because he's just leaning on his elbows on this post and rail fence. And, Thinking you know, there was hands. flies and hands <laughs> and he was, you know, you could tell wow. these hands, you know, had built many fences and yeah. fixed many pumps and had done so many things. And they just told a story to me. Like, wow. And that shot... I remember that shot, watching it go to air, on, you know, later on, and they held that shot just forever and ever and ever, wow. just, just the way Les shot it. I was sort of inspired by how, how emotive and how powerful such, something that seems so simple yeah. can... How much of a story it can tell. How much of a story it can tell, yeah. yeah. And that's the... That's the, it's the heart of it, really, is That's the true it? reward of, yeah. of documentary filmmaking. Wow. Yeah. So where to after the ABC? I did my stint as a news cameraman, yep. shooting on film. Yeah, 16mm. 16 16mm 16 film. And that was around the time where 
the commercial networks were transitioning to videotape. Yep. Three-quarter inch But the ABC tape. stayed with film for the quite ABC a while, The ABC stayed with they? film, yeah, for, for a couple of years. Yeah. I remember being given a, a, a CP16 camera, you know, an yeah. American camera, which was like this bulletproof <laughs> beast that, that worked really well. It was a lightweight camera and, and you'd shoot news. And I, and I did that for a few years. And then all of a sudden the opportunity came along, which was, for me, the dream job. Yeah. was to shoot a big country. And I remember when that happened, I was obviously so excited. And I shot about six six episodes of a big country, all on film. Yeah, Reversal or negative? Those shows were shot on negative. The news was shot on reversal and the, the documentaries were usually shot on Kodak negative film, yeah. Yeah, so you had that kind of that discipline of the yeah. completely unforgiving reversal yeah. film in news yeah, and yeah, then yeah, exactly. moving to neg. Yeah, yeah, you had that no latitude at all in, in, in the reversal film stocks of the time. I think it was called, it was Kodak 7240 was the, yeah. was the stock. Yeah. Wow. And so after Big Country, where to then? After Big Country, funnily enough, I, I was fascinated by the idea of drama. I was working with a cameraman, his name was Julian Penny, and mm. there was another cameraman called Peter Hendry, who were the two drama cameramen at the ABC. So I got to do a little bit of operating purely by sort of accident on a couple of drama productions as an additional operator. Of course, being completely different to news or, or documentaries or current affairs, which is where I'd been. Yeah. Then there was this other completely different methodology and completely different approach. I found it fascinating. All of a sudden you're working with actors and, yeah. and, and a director who's... It's a whole know, different set yeah, of parameters. Yeah, I'd come from where it didn't have a director, you know. like <laughs> So all of a sudden you've got someone calling the shots yeah anyway I, so was that was that frustrating or was that exciting no it was exciting to me I, I i just it was something that i thought was really interesting how there was like this process that where you did multiple takes and yeah. everything had to be right and the performance had to be right the shot had to be right mm. it had to be in focus it was a focus puller and i thought i've never seen you know, i've never <laughs> seen a focus puller before but there's a focus puller pulling focus you normally do that yourself yeah yeah so it was kind of Cool, and there was a lot more people, and you had grips, and you had electricians, and 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 everything, and you know a, set, a boom operator. It was, yeah. it was. I thought it was amazing. <laughs> yeah. In my career as a cinematographer, other than working as an operator, wasn't a, a director of photography on any ABC productions until I left the ABC. Right. <laughs> and then, so I left the ABC yeah. to to actually go and shoot some freelance documentaries. Mm. And that was sort of in the mid mid eighties. So I started at the ABC at the beginning of seventy eight, and around nineteen eighty five, I left the ABC, and I shot some documentaries for a, a production company that was making documentaries for for the commercial stations. Yeah. And then those producers, Tristram Mile and Bob Loader, mm. were about to do their first long form show, and was it was called The Challenge, right? Which was about a drama based on Australia winning the America's Cup, which happened in 1983. Yeah. But this this show came along around 1986. It came along about three years later, mm. 86, mid 86. You know, the finance people were all talking about this, and the producers were all talking about this. And and I thought I don't I don't have any drama experience as a yeah. cinematographer. And but Bob and Tristram were so loyal to me that they said 
Steve, you know, like we'd love you to do this, but to get this off the ground, you don't have the, the, the credits on the board yeah, yeah. as a cinematographer. Of course, I understood that, you know, mm. that, that that's the way it is. This is when Russell Boyd yeah. was asked to photograph this miniseries. Mm. They were talking to Russell about me, who I hadn't met at the time. And then he said, oh, well, why doesn't Steve shoot second unit? Wow. And uh, so, and he said, he's a sailor and he can, he's good on the water and he's, he's got to go out and shoot these 12 meter yachts. Yeah, yeah. So, out of Fremantle. So so that was my next gig. I did that for eight weeks. I was wow. literally out of Fremantle Harbour with t- two or three 12-metre yachts. <laughs> I shot the aerials. I shot boat to boat. But it was a drama. You know, I was yeah. shooting, shooting with actors or, or with doubles, you know, yeah. and standings and shooting action sequences of boats rounding marks and sails being hoisted and all sorts of crazy stuff. Fantastic. So it was awesome. Yeah. And that was but my the first. Best of both worlds in some the ways. Best of both worlds. Yeah. And in an in a interesting kind of way, it was a drama, mm. but I was using a lot of my documentary skills. Yeah, of course. For that, for that yeah. photography. So it was an interesting kind of blend, you know. And so that was, I guess, a foot in the door with the drama side of things once you had that credit it was, as second yeah. unit. Yeah, I certainly certainly got a taste for action and sh- and shooting second unit, the logistics of filming on the water and all that yeah. kind of stuff, you know. So, yeah, it was good fun. It was There's great. Something we'll come back to later, but that um, that taste for action has certainly kind of yes. come into its own, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it kind of does, yeah. Yeah, it kind of does. That effectively, I guess, gave you that transition into into the drama world. It did. It did. Yes, and, and, and then you know, having that connection with wonderful Russell Boyd, who who gave me that opportunity. Yeah. It was around that time. Then along came Crocodile Dundee. Yeah. And Russell asked me to be the second unit DP on that. To me, that was amazing. You know, there, there I was given a, a Panavision thirty-five millimeter camera, <laughs> and anamorphic lenses. You know, shooting all around the the Northern Territory and Kakadu. What an experience that was. You know, and working under Russell's direction was just fantastic. Russell's another one of those people that I've never heard anybody say. A bad word about no. he's just one of the most liked and respected people Absolutely, around. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. And what what an incredible career, you know. And working with Peter Weir and yeah, amazing yeah. director of photography. I, I I feel very lucky and grateful that Russell came in into my world at least yeah. and and trusted me to be at work with him. You know, mm-hmm. so. and Crocodile Dundee was one of. Well, I mean, it was a unique landmark yeah. film for Australia, wasn't it? It was. It was unique in many ways. I think it kind of it summed up the best of what the Australian film industry was doing in the 1980s. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And and it really exposed Australia to to the United States, yeah. you know. I mean, that was really sort of it just started to unfold that whole acknowledgement that Australian films were being noticed. Yeah. And, and, worth, and, worth and the noticing. filmmakers were being noticed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what was that on the 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 technical side? What was it like suddenly working with Panaflex camera and anamorphic having a Panavision camera and anamorphic lenses just to me just felt like, wow, this is like a big movie. And <laughs> it's real. Yeah, it's real. And and you'd you know, you'd watch your film projected at the end of the end of the day and the, yeah. each night and you'd watch the day the work from the day before or two days before, depending yeah. on, on where you were. And it was just breathtaking to see thirty five millimeter film. It, it just it was just amazing. Especially I imagine in those landscapes. Yes. Those landscapes were just, you know, shooting 35 millimetre 
Panavision anamorphic lenses doing was just they're doing the landscape justice. To me, it was just such a, a beautiful way to frame landscapes. You know, mm. having that two, three, five to one ratio. It is a beautiful frame yeah. to work with, isn't it? It is beautiful, and it's lovely how the focus and the bouquet, the lens drops mm. off so nicely, and 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 it's such a different look. It's yeah. really really cool. Uh, it's beautiful the way that's coming back now with yeah. with digital. It's it kind is of- nice. Yeah, it's nice mm. that we can now shoot with a digital camera, but still use the old old style lenses you yeah know. yeah that whole like legacy anamorphic lenses that's great yeah yeah it's a great marriage so what was the film that you started DOPing drama well, features well what happened is after i did these second unit things with, with russell we did i did another movie with him in new zealand a, a film for disney which was which was really my first taste of hollywood we shot a disney film called the rescue in new zealand it involved boats again jet boats on, on the rivers in <laughs> yeah. the south island so it was sort of becoming my specialty to do <laughs> action and and water i yeah. guess <laughs> what happened after that is i ended up back at the abc Really? But I was hired as a freelancer. Yeah. So I wasn't on staff anymore. I came back to shoot the pilot for a TV show called Police Rescue. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. and we had a lovely director called Peter Fisk. You know, we had the actors, Gary Sweet, who was the star. And that was sort of in the late 80s, around 1989. And it was really it was a very different type of show for Australia at that point, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was. I mean... The director, Peter Fisk, and I had actually watched some a lot of the, the British television shows yep. that were coming out at the time. There was a show called Edge of Darkness. Right. Which was a really beautifully shot – I remember it really clearly. It wasn't staged. It seemed very docudrama, yeah. which is probably not the right word. I'm, that kind of feel. I'm sort of, yeah, it's that sort of feel. I'm not sure if there yeah. is a word for it. But <laughs> it was really great to look at. And, and, and the storytelling it was very powerful. So, you know – we sort of mixed around it and looked at a few different ideas and our style ended up becoming a long lens observational kind mm. of look to the to the show. Yeah. So we stuck with that and the long lens thing became our look, you know, yeah, very yeah. observational camera technique. Camera kind of outside of the action. Yeah, the camera kind of outside of the action, yeah. 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 And so that would have been shooting Super 16 standard? Yeah, it was Super 16, yeah. I think. Yeah, I yeah. think it was the beginning of Super 16, yeah. Zoom lenses. Yep, yeah, zoom lenses. You know, they were always on, you know, 100, 150 millimetre <laughs> at the long end of the zoom. Or yeah. then there, there was the there was another lens, the 20 to 1, which was, I think, 240 millimetre. Wow. And we had some a Canon 300, which you could which use. Which on 16 mils. Yeah. yeah it was a, It was massive, yeah. The interesting thing is, which you'd never do today, is we shot those 10 episodes of Series 1 with one camera. Wow. It's wow. unheard of now. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't even... I wouldn't even know how to use one camera anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, need lot, I need lots of cameras. But, yeah, it was pretty amazing that we, that we, that we did that. But that yeah. was just the way it was, you know. Yeah. They could only afford to process the negative from one camera. Yep, yep. They could afford the, to rent one camera and lens it and, and you know, so that was crew it. Crew it. Yeah, crew it. Yeah. yeah, so that was it. And so what sort of pace were you going? We were going at a, at a quick pace. Yeah. And I guess I was buzzed by that, you know. You had to think on your feet. You know, you had to shoot five or six minutes of screen time a day. Mm. So that averaged into five or six pages of dialogue a day or action. And yeah, and you just sh- great skills to Great skills to learn. Yeah, 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 it was great. And I'd always thought of it as like, well, there's your A scenes and your B scenes, you yeah. know, and everything, your goal was to make everything an A. Yeah. But you just had to let that go sometimes and be respectful that we still have a schedule to stick to. So we've got to get something in the we can. We have to be out of this location by a certain time. 
and then we have to move and then we're going to be somewhere else in the afternoon. So yeah, that kind of training was wonderful, I think, to be able to think on your feet, think quickly, mm. how can I make this look good? You know, no and dithering. Then, <laughs> and, and no dithering and then move on. And, yeah. and you either made it or, you know, like, oh, it looks okay, you know, like, or, but you have to f- just figure it all out as you yeah. went along, you know. So Fantastic. it was good. It was really good fun. So did you do more TV drama after that or was did you, when did you make the leap to features? I made the leap to features as a cinematographer in the early 1990s. Lovely filmmaker called David Elphick. Yeah. He came along and, and discussed with me a movie he was going to make in Perth. And it was a film called Love in Limbo, mm. but it was known in the US for its release there as The Great Pretender, I think it was. Right. And it was one of the first f- films, I guess, when I'm not sure if it was called Screen West at the time, but it was it was the sort of the first time around the early days of a feature being shot in Perth. And at the time, nearly all the crew came from Sydney or Melbourne because was, there, was, there was no one there. There was no equipment. There was no lighting gear. Was there a lab there at no. that time? There could have been a lab, but I'm not sure. I didn't didn't process 35mm. Right, yeah. Yeah, there was a lab there. So our film was all sent to Sydney, you know, freighted right to across Sydney the continent. and processed, yeah. <laughs> but we made a very fun film. It was sort of a lighthearted romantic comedy, you know, yeah. adventure. And that was my first feature film as a first unit director of photography. Fantastic. Which was great, yeah. And David Elphick was very loyal and we ended up making another film called No Worries, which was a film about the drought in Australia. And it yeah. was a, you know, a drama, which was a, another lovely film. So you made the leap to, to features as the director of photography. Yeah, and, you know, we got, I got to work with – I mean, that was Russell Crowe's very early films, you yeah, know. Yeah, and yeah. and so, so he was in Love in Limbo. Yeah. It was great. It was kind of a lot of early, you know, actors – kicked off their careers with mm. films made back then, you know. So what happened for you between these quirky little low-budget Australian films yeah. and Hollywood? The jump to Hollywood kind of happened through a connection that I'd made working with Russell Boyd on a Disney film in New Zealand called yeah. The Rescue. Uh, one of the producers of that film is a guy called Barry Osborne. Right, yes. He yeah. was going to make a film on Easter Island and it was called Rapa Nui. yeah. It was a film for Warner Brothers. For me, it was a an, an amazing opportunity, like mm. to be shooting a feature film for Warner Brothers on a remote island. Yeah, yeah. So it had its challenges, and because it was on an island, the producer Barry Osborne decided that take a crew from Australia. Wow. Which is what we did. So we crewed it out of Australia, and and uh, and I took along an amazing gaffer called Reg Garside and an amazing yep, Rip, Ray yeah. Brown. Wow! And we collaborated together with our director Kevin Reynolds, who whose next film was Waterworld. Yep. Shot by Dean Samler, of course. Yeah. This film was a a film set three three centuries ago, and it was basically about a a war between two clans on Easter Island. Mm. I mean, it's loosely based on fact. We went there and li- literally the produ- the producers loaded Antonov aircraft <laughs> flying from Sydney via Auckland to Easter Island wow. on the other side of the Pacific Ocean. You know, the guys were making cherry pickers and genie booms out of, you know, cranes on the island and they'd wow. build levelling devices and alarms so, it, you know, we could put big lights up in the air, dinos and all sorts of things and do you know, night filming on an, this remote island in 
you know, incredibly challenging weather conditions. Because if you suddenly needed another bit of gear, like the, just the turnaround time on it would yeah, have been the impossible. Tur- the t- turnaround was impossible. The other thing that, that was interesting about that movie is I wouldn't see my dailies or my rushes for a week. Here I was, I'd be shooting, <laughs> shooting, shooting, shooting for a whole week and then there'd be like this big pile of 35mm film cans of exposed negative, wow. unprocessed, did you sleep sent, at all? Sent to Sydney <laughs> and processed. Like like imagine a whole week of film. It's like yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, I don't know, thirty thousand feet or whatever it is. It would be processed, they'd make a print, and then the lab would look at it and then I'd I'd get a report that w- yeah. would come back a week later. Wow. And they'd freight all the all the work print and then I could watch it projected, you know, every, weekly. So wow. it was a marathon. Watching dailies is yeah. a marathon effort. Usually on a Sunday afternoon, wow. whole crew would come into this hall that we'd blacked out, and you know we'd crank up the thirty-five mil projector, and that's Hope how we watch it. So it was pretty scary <laughs> for me. It was a big Hollywood movie. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so you you were making that leap to a big Hollywood movie, and basically working blind working most of the blind, time. Yeah, you know, and I was, you know, still I was learning my craft as we still do <laughs> do every day. You know, yeah. but. But it was pretty scary times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was Talk pretty about scary. in the deep end. And so obviously you survived and the pictures came out. Cool. Yeah, everything <laughs> worked. And it, it's completely different to the regular of overnight film processing where you could watch your work at least the next day and you could tweak. Know where you're at. You could also tweak if you're on a set for a week, then you can tweak a little bit mm. here and there and polish it a little bit. But that was literally just flying blind, you know. So it would have taken a lot of decisiveness about your lighting and your exposures particularly. Yeah, it was, it was certainly a commitment. Yeah. And, you know, trusting your gut in the end, you know, yeah. it was really, you know, what got us through it, got me through it. It was like, okay, <laughs> this is it. <laughs> this is it. It's either going to work or it's not. Oh, I hope that back light's not too hot or I hope that front light's, you know, I hope it's going to be a little underexposed, you know, whatever whatever it is. Do you think having wanted. had that experience under those conditions has given you more confidence moving forward? I think it has, yeah. I yeah. think learning Because if you can make that, that way, work... Yeah, yeah, you made that work. Yeah, I know. How I, difficult I, is anything else? Yeah, I know exactly. You know, it's like being literally thrown under the bus, and yeah. and, and you're going to have to come out and 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 keep, come out the keep, other side and keep, keep battling and keep going. You know, so it was yeah. great. You know, when I look back on it, I think you know what a marvelous opportunity mm. and what a you know great thing to to do. You know, yeah, and have yeah. done. You know, so a fun, challenging project for my first Hollywood project. The ARRI Sky Panel series has quickly become the go-to soft light source for many cinematographers around the world, whether they're working on massive studio films or small independent films. The Sky Panels have a beautiful soft light source, great colorimetry, and a lot of flexibility in how they're used. And that same light quality and flexibility is now available in a point light source with the ARRI Orbiter. So if you're in Australia, get in touch with the team at ARRI Australia and they can show you through the entire ARRI lighting range, including the sky panels and the orbiter, and help you figure out how to get the best out of them. And so you would have been on the radar then in in Hollywood. Yeah, well, funnily enough, a Hollywood agent saw that movie. I don't know how many people saw this film in the end, but a Hollywood agent noticed it at a screening and he contacted me and he wanted to represent me. And... You know, as you know, I, I wasn't really thinking about the whole Hollywood thing in that 
regard, you know, yeah. of having someone, having an agent. I mean, how, what does that mean? You know, yeah. that's kind of, uh, that world didn't sort of connect with me at all, you know. And let's have your people talk to my people. Yeah, wasn't yeah, that, that, part that, of the plan. That just didn't seem like the way to make a film, you know. Yeah, it yeah. Didn't, and it, to me, it didn't seem like something that, you know, what was it? all much more personal. Talk about a cinematographer, yeah. you know, with having someone like that, you know. Yeah. So, because in Australia, it's all much more personal. It's much more personal. But anyway, for, I have to say about a year, this guy kept calling. Wow. Kept calling, kept wow. calling, kept calling. And I remember one day talking to Russell Boyd again, you know, yeah. like about this. And I said, Russell, what am I going to do? I've got a problem. <laughs> I've got this agent that keeps ringing me. Yeah. And Russell said, who's the agent? And I said, it's a guy called Creighton Smith at Smith, Gosnell, Nicholson. Wow. And Russell said, Steve, he said, if Creighton Smith calls you and wants to represent you, you don't say no. Wow. And I said, really? <laughs> and so it's as simple yeah. as that. I thought, okay. and But I was still a little thingy about the whole thing and, you know, I wasn't really sure, you know, if that yeah. was what I even wanted. So I was still learning and amazed by the whole thing, but I didn't feel I was at that level. Wow. And so you eventually said yes, presumably. Yeah. So what happened is I then signed up with this agent. What's that, that process like? I guess the, the process is pretty simple. I mean, yeah. they're on the lookout for people they can represent. And, mm. and at the time, it was always... And so, I guess over there, you know, talent's a commodity. Something well, yeah, to be sold. Yeah, no, no, exactly. And it's usually, you know, they're on, just on the lookout for, for talent. Yeah. And that film got noticed and for whatever reason. And then, you know, next thing you know, I'm being represented by, by an agent. Yeah. So I decided that maybe that's just the way, way it is. And, and then... The more I sort of looked into it, I thought, no, that's that's just that's just the way Hollywood works. Yeah. I just ran with that for for a while, and next thing you know, there was just little job opportunities to shoot feature films. Sort of just wow. just just sort of started to come along. Yep. And so did uh, that kind of start with doing meetings around Hollywood, or yeah. was it straight into the? Well, what happened is that I was offered a picture, a Fox movie that I shot in Montana. And I was coming back through, I'd finished the film and I came back through Los Angeles and I decided to ring Jim Wilson and Kevin Costner who produced the film Rapa Nui that I did yeah. on Easter Island. They were actually the, the, they were the physical producers of the film. Right. Kevin wasn't in that but he, but he was the producer. I phoned the, Jim and Kevin just out of the blue and this was yeah. two years after Rapa Nui because I thought, oh, no, these are all my contacts and I should say hi and all yeah, that sort yeah. of stuff. Jim called me back in the hotel I was staying in in West Hollywood and he said that he and Kevin wanted to have a meeting with me. Wow. So I went and had a meeting with Jim and Kevin and Kevin was looking for a cinematographer to film The Postman with wow. that he was going to yeah. star in yep. and direct. Kevin told me that he looked at Rapa Nui the night before because he knew I was in town Yeah. and Kevin – Loved it, and you sort of, you know, you just thought what I did with all the landscapes and everything was really interesting. So he offered me to sh to be the director of photography on the Postman. Fantastic, yeah, which was amazing. So and, and that what, was what, a great collaboration yeah. with Kevin. It was very challenging, mm. and then all of a, all of a sudden now I'm the director of photography on a film that had a director who was also playing the lead. What was that like? It was hard because they're they're two roles. On yeah. a production that demand a huge amount of yeah, time that's and right. attention, yeah. so yeah. it's always trying to get yeah. the director's yeah. attention for for enough answers to questions. Yeah, no, absolutely. Throw the lead role into that yeah. as well. It's, yeah, it, 
it, it is hard because, and I've done this a couple of times since then now with uh, director yeah. actors. I can understand why they do it, but I often wonder. I'm not sure this is right. Is if each of them are diluted a little bit, a little yeah. bit because that's so specific. What obviously I each, think it has to be. Is. It would have to be one of the toughest things to do. I would to, uh, to direct and yeah, play the lead role in for something. sure. It's definitely one of the toughest things. But what we had on that film was a solid producer in Jim Wilson. Yeah, and he was just great at just keep keeping that together. You know, wow. so that would make all the difference. That would make all the difference. Yeah, yeah. and I think every director need, needs to have a good producer that's going to back you and, and support you and believe, yeah. in, believe in your creative vision. And if a director has that, then I think the whole – what we have to do as a cinematographer is is a lot easier if that core thing is maintained. You know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And that was, a, that was a period film as well, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Well, set in the future in a post-apocalyptic oh, yeah, world, yeah. 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 So, again, a, a quite a different visual treat. Yeah. Lots to play with. Lots to play yeah. with, yeah. And yet I think – probably more opportunities to draw on that documentary experience as yeah, well. It was, it was a little bit of that. Yeah. It was landscapes. It was, you know, there were some really lovely sets built for that film and, and the production design was very grand and, mm. and lovely. And, you know, I decided to shoot it with anamorphic lenses, you know, yeah. just to give it that epic feel and quality to it, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, which it really warranted. Yeah. And Kevin was very much... A fan of the Western, it just seemed to be the right thing to shoot anamorphic widescreen, yeah. and 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 you know he 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 loved it and embraced it. And so let's come back to fast action. You've really kind of found a niche there with with yeah. some fast cars, haven't yeah. you? Yeah, I'm lucky that I've been involved with the Fast and the Furious mm. franchise. I've just completed my sixth film. Wow! And they've been incredible journeys. Mm. I started with a director. Justin Lin in 2005. That was the first film we worked on together. Since then, we've branched out into other genres like we did Star Trek Beyond as well yeah. in 2015, as well as some pilots for some of the for CBS and NBC. So what, what was the Star Trek experience like? The Star Trek experience was great and it was challenging on many levels and it was a genre that I'd never been yeah. into before, you know, I hadn't hadn't shot anything like that. But it was it was fantastic. We had the set of the bridge deck of the Starship Enterprise, yeah. which had been held over from the previous film that J.J. Abrams had made mm. a few years earlier. So it was pulled out of storage and reassembled on a soundstage in Vancouver. But I couldn't help but notice that a lot of the, the lighting technology in the set, you know, hadn't been upgraded to LED or anything at that mm. point because it was really only the early days of LED anyway. And that's been such a huge yeah. change for us, hasn't it? It has. LED lighting is a real game changer and, yeah. and exciting. In some ways more than digital cameras even. Yeah. Like, I mean, both right up there yeah, in terms both of right how there, much yeah. they've changed what's possible. Yeah, no, no. And, and I think two of the things in my career that have really changed the game is the fact that we went from film acquisition to digital. Yeah. So that's been amazing. And also the LED lighting. You can literally have wireless lamps all around a, a stage and with an iPad control them all. Yeah. I mean – who would ever – I didn't think of that when I was shooting my big country documentary in <laughs> 1977. <laughs> so Just the creative freedom of that. The creative to, freedom, To be able yeah. to experiment and move quickly and yeah, yeah. at scale. So you can imagine now what it's like shooting long-form television having that technology. I yeah. mean, it would be 
and it is amazing that you can really think on your feet. And you, I think you, you see create. the impact of that on long-term yeah, you can. television. It's, yeah, you can, yeah. It's visually there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, everything is, is you can have colour contrast by changing the colour of a light. It, this is just quick. It's like mm. quick, quick, click, click, literally. Yeah. So that's, to me that's become a new thing as well, as well as your, your gaffer and your camera team and your grip, key grip. Mm is the dimmer control board operator is vital and yeah, major creative collaboration major creative collaboration yeah for the lighting and for camera the dit of course is vital as well yeah. to have that so how did you find that transition from shooting film to shooting digital the transition was it was a little confronting to finish shooting film and then all of a sudden you know you're standing alongside a digital camera mm. You know, the other mechanical, the mechanics of a film being pulled down through the movement of a camera, yeah. we were all comfortable with and we knew what it could do. And yeah. you, you knew how far you could overexpose it, you knew how far you could underexpose it. And then all of a sudden, now digital came along very quickly into our lives as cinematographers. Yeah. That tipping point was very sudden. Wasn't it was it? very sudden. The camera didn't seem to be, didn't have that magic to me anymore. It was yeah. just, it was just a device. But Do you think that, that it was a computer with a lens that, mount? Yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. And that's what they are. That's what they, they are. They, yeah, they have software updates, and that was daunting. I think. You Do know? you think that that mystery being taken out of the process has impacted on the way the cinematographer does their job? Yeah, in general, yes and no. I mean, I think there are some things that have come out of digital, and I think nearly every cinematographer or camera operator would know is that there's a tendency now for directors just to literally roll all day, <laughs> yeah. and this is. Everyone knows yeah, this. Yeah. And now I find it interesting that, that that's become the style yeah. nowadays. And I think there are particular situations where that does get you better material, but yeah, there are. Yeah, it doesn't absolutely. always. Yeah. Sometimes so, stopping and exactly. everyone getting there, getting so, themselves together works well too. <laughs> well, that's right, yeah. And it's a tough one to sort of be objective about yeah. because if that's the style, mm. then then the technology is now dictating the style. Yeah, it doesn't put a limitation on that. Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. So I find that, that that's fascinating, you mm. know, that that's changed. How do you find that collaboration with the DIT on set? You know, working with the DIT now is a key thing, a key member of the team. I'm excited by it. and you know, We can make quick decisions about iris and, and yeah. T-stops and filtration and NDs and colour temperature and... Everything. See and, exactly what you're getting. Yeah, and a lot of the lighting, you know, of course we we do, you know, looking at a monitor now, mm. you know. So that's exciting and I've embraced that and, I, I, you know, I do enjoy that part of it. The not so enjoyable side to me is that 60% of your day is potentially inside a dark box. Yeah. And <laughs> it's not it, quite as much it, fun. And it's not quite as much fun. So if you're standing out in the middle of the Saudi desert, in a black box, <laughs> uh, it's kind of you know taking away a lot of the atmosphere and and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. everything you know. So, but you know, it's not always like that. But the merits of the technology are exciting. So, over those six Fast and Furious films that you've done, what are some of the things that have changed through that time? Well, what's happened with Fast and the Furious? It's an, an amazing franchise because mm. every time we seem to make a film, there seems to be a bigger following. Each time, you know, so the yeah. audience. Most is, franchises kind bigger. of yeah. out, but it's just been growing yeah, and growing. Th- yeah, this one this one has soared. It's been interesting watching that evolution, but mm. we're always given the opportunity to make the, the next film has to be bigger than the, than the previous yeah. one, you know. <laughs> so there's always a lot of head scratching about what that's going to be, you know. Yeah. So it's fun 
working with the studio, with Universal. I'm very grateful that they've been loyal to me. And, you know, I've had so much fun with the, the technology and the creative side of those films, you know. They're very challenging. I guess one of the virtues of that, those kind of films is that you, you would have the opportunity to play with the newest and the best toys. There's certainly a lot of toys that we, we get to play with, you know, whether it's camera cars or, you know, stabilised heads. I mean, there's so many choices now. But the interesting thing is is that every film is different anyway. There's never the same rig. You know, we never do it. We never use the same rig twice. I mean, a lot of things are just custom made for a particular shot, you know, yeah. or engineered for something, and then it won't get used again, you know. Yeah. So, but it is good fun. I mean, just the fact we have wireless technology now that we didn't yeah. have 15 years ago on set. No. To be able to... 15 years ago, I would never have dreamt of a camera starting outside a car window <laughs> and then it slides in behind yeah. and lands behind a driver driving at 100 miles an hour. Wow. Because someone would have had to physically pull it, track that dolly or whatever. But now I can do it sitting in a camera car following that car and with a wireless control unit and I can be looking ahead and come through the side, look at look through the the side mirror and land on an over shoulder of the actor, you know, looking wow. ahead or with by following somebody and just using a remote control wireless system. So the technology's changed and I guess... It's allowing you to do more. It's allowing us to do more, yeah. It's allowing us to do quite inventive work, I think. Now, the industry at the moment is clearly at a, a really interesting point of change where you've got the rise of the streaming services, the yeah. stagnation or whatever's happening with kind of the traditional yeah. TV networks, yeah. but they're, they're still in there trying to reinvent themselves. Yeah. And yet cinema, like it has been for the last kind of half a century, it's kind of there's regular announcements that cinema's dying and yet yes. the audiences are kind of growing and growing again. Yes. Where do you think that's all going in the next few years from where you sit? I think content is increasing at a rapid rate. So it seems that there's a lot more content required for streaming services mm. and and people can't seem to get enough people of it. can't seem to get enough you know so you can just imagine because there is more content yeah there's more writers writing yeah. there's got to be more directors there's there has to be more cinematographers mm. so i sort of see it as it seems to be busy generally mm. across the world in long in long form world which is good i mean most of the big film studios are constantly booked out and full these days i've seen that a lot so it is hard to get stage space a lot of television is now shot in los angeles and less feature films you know because of obviously tax incentives in different countries offer different deals yeah, yeah, yeah. you know it really is very much a global industry these it days it is very much it? a global it's industry um, yeah the head offices in la for sure yeah <laughs> yeah and, and again that's really only happened in the last decade or two yeah, at the yeah. most. It's been quite a solid ramp, mm. a fast ramp into a different thing now. Where it kind of needs that global scale yeah. just to, to deliver that much content. Yeah, just to deliver the content. Yeah, no, exactly. People are sitting on a bus or a train now and watching a movie. It's and quite pro amazing. probably at uh, a lot of the time watching a on a mobile device yeah. that's got the same resolution yeah. as most cinema screens. Yeah, yeah exactly. And same colour space. Yeah, it's, it's, inc yeah. it's incredible. So what's some of the technology that you're most excited about at this point? The biggest thing for me is still LED lighting. You know, I, And it's advancing so rapidly, it, isn't it? It is, yeah. You know, it's got to be a, a relatively cost-effective way to, to light stuff as well now, you know. Absolutely. So, yeah. I remember John Seal talking about on Perfect Storm and they worked out their electricity bill for lighting the green screen on the main set was over a million bucks, just wow. the electricity. Wow. 
And, you know, you think about the impact that LEDs would make on us, yeah. something like that. That's a good thing LED has evolved, in ter- certainly in terms of power consumption, of course. Yeah. And and heat. I mean, yeah. I easily remember the days when there'd be 20Ks lined up down the side of a set. Yeah. And it would just be so hot on stage. Yeah. But that's not a problem anymore. And, uh, I mean, I'm sure... You would have had situations on some of those small films where you know you've got relatively big lights for in yeah. a small space. Yeah, in, that's this, right. in the Australian summer. Yeah, exactly. It's just exactly. <laughs> brutal. Yeah, yeah, it's nuts, isn't it? Yeah, and LEDs are just not a not a problem. Yeah, not a problem anymore. I, yeah. I mean, that's changed so much. Yeah, it's a real game changer. So, what's up next for you? I've been very fortunate the last decade. Every year, I've been in the northern hemisphere summer shooting a movie, and I usually come home around November. December. I have my time out with my family and it's all wow. fantastic. And my, my family comes and goes also while I'm filming. When my sons were babies and younger, my wife and sons would we would just spend the whole time together. And, fantastic. you know, we're yeah. lucky to go to... What a great way to grow up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My sons are really have enjoyed it and always talk about the places we've been and yeah. luckily have been, you know, and the experiences they have, you know, mm. so it's it's really nice that they could grow up like that and, yeah. yeah. I'm back off to LA next week. We've got some tweaking to do on Fast and Furious 9, so that comes out in, in May. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And I'm also going to look at Sonic the Hedgehog comes out next week. Yes. So, yeah, the trailers are all out for that. It's so. looking good. Yeah, it's good. It's a, it's a fun movie. It's a fun movie. Yeah, it's great. Fantastic. Steve, thanks for stopping in. Thank you, Ben. And that was Steve Winden, ACS ASC, brought to you with the support of our sponsors, MZ Online Training and ARI Australia. See you next time.